0: My number four pick, I have no idea who to recommend to, because <laughs> I think it was written purely for me. <laughs> um, my number four pick is...
1: Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an
2: increase in your library holds list. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm Virginia here with my book friends, Mark, Fiona, and Corinne. It is December, everyone. I don't know why you're clapping. So December is traditionally, on Keep It Fictional, we take a couple episodes to celebrate all the books that were published this year, that we read and loved, and say thank you to all the authors, really, for all the stories that they gave us that that make us laugh, make us cry, make us angry, that gave us lots of things to think about, that inspire us, that make us change our point of view, all sorts of really wonderful things that stories can do for us. It is also a time where we kind of look at the list of books that we read, preferably in a beautifully organized spreadsheet, and pit these books against one another to see who reigns supreme. So this is an episode where we will reveal to you, but not just to you, but also to each other, because we have kept it secret, our top five books of the year. So I am super excited to find out what is on everybody's list. And in the past two years, we have some books that appear on multiple lists. I'm going to venture to guess this year there's absolutely no duplicates. Is that correct? Probably? Accurate,
1: accurate, accurate, accurate.
2: Right? I I feel like we all read some different things. So that means, listeners, you have like 20 books to pick from to add to your to-be-read list. So this is also super exciting. But before we do that, before we unveil our picks, so in this episode and also for the next episode, uh, what we're going to do is I want to give everybody a chance to give a shout out to books that we read this year that we love very, very much also, but just didn't quite make it to the top five, or they got books that are not published in 2022 that we also love, 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 love a lot that we want to highlight. So that's what we're going to start off with before we do so. So maybe like, you know, two, three minutes, you know, name as many books as as you like um, that you want to to give them like, you know, a shout out. We are going to start with Fiona. What are some honourable mentions on your list? Thank you, Virginia. You are being very generous this year with the amount
0: of time you're giving us for shoutouts. So I'm going to start with some ones that I did talk about on the podcast, but they were good enough to say twice. So Catherine the Great by Robert K. Massey. Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Huang. Thank you, Mark. The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Those are all previously published in other years. Oh, sorry, all of mine are previously published in other years. She Drives Me Crazy by Kelly Quendlin. uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about. It's a fun rom-com. And then two who were really up there for me this year, published in the last, I don't know, decade, uh, probably last five years. uh, Gym Patrol on the Purple Line by Deepa Anapara. I'm hoping to get to talk to you in more depth about that because it's fantastic. And I think my top read for the year, A Sitting in St. James by Rita Williams-Garcia. I wish I read it last year, so it could have been on my top for last year. A fantastic YA historical fiction that really... Shouldn't be in YA. Uh, I think it should be read by everyone. And I hope that I get a chance to talk about it in the new year.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go next and I'm going to stick with all 2022 books because if not, I will have to mention a book that Corinne hated with a passion. So I'm going to like not do that. So I'm just going to stick with 2022. So I feel like this is a year, I mean, every year it is, but especially a year of horror for me. Beach by Hiron NS. Oh, so good. Gothic body horror, hive mind, things in the eyeballs. I mean, just like, what more do you want? And then another book, which I think gives like a really, really different view of a zombie book. If you think you've read everything about zombies, well, you have to check out. And then I Woke Up by Malcolm Deflin. And then, of course, we have my favorite Mother Thing by Annesley Hogarth, co workers. Watch out if you see a jelly salmon in the fridge from me or from Heather. And then another book that I really, really love is Full Immersion by Gamma Amor, virtual reality as a way to do therapy, but with really, really horrible consequences. It is amazing. There's just one little thing in there that really bugs me over the book, or else this would have been like definitely on my top five. It was like perfect. Books that really gave voices that don't often get captured in books. This is one recently I read When We Were Sisters by Fatima Asuka, so good. They decided to write this story because they think that none of the stories about orphans really resonates with them. So they really want to write this. It is gorgeous, poetic prose. It's a very quick read. And it is very much about undocumented Americans, about orphans, about gender identity. It is excellent. And then as blending sort of Filipino folklore with a Willie Picton story, which was for us Port Moody folks here, like, you know, it is a little closer to home. This is A Tiny Upward shove by Melissa Chapman. Super, super good. And then two books that sort of started with characters who die right on the first page. The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty, National Book Award winner. And also The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Shihan Kuranatiklaka, the winner of the Booker Prize. Excellent. So good. Uh, shout out to my Latin American offers. Thank you so much. This is another year where I, I really got to know more of you, especially Ruben Delgado. It is the family Isquiado, another amazing family from Mexico that you really do need to know. And yes, Fiona, they are also cursed or they think they are cursed at least. And then there's Chilean poet by Alejandro Sambar. Thank you, Megan Madonna, for bringing that to us. Thank you for translating that, you know, and a really tender, surprisingly sort of tender step family story um, that also kind of bring us to the literary scene in Chile where they think that there are too many poets. And then, of course, my Banana Pants pick for the year, Fever Dream, My Volcano, which I talk about on the Banana Pants episode by John Elizabeth Stintz, a Canadian book. Um, even though you live in the States now, and last but not least, existential crisis pick because it is keep it fictional here. It is, of course, The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. I will never forget that chilling octopus scene where you came out of the beach. Oh, so good. Anyway, so those are my shout outs. Um, so, Corinne, let's hear your pick. Yeah,
1: so if I had to choose like a theme for my reading this year, it was definitely like reading in translation. Um, This is the year that I discovered that I have a giant... Book crush on a translator. Every work that he chooses to translate is a work that I want to read. And that is Anton Hur, who this year I read his translation of Violets by uh, suk Shin, who did Please Look After Mum and who's writing a sequel next year. So I'm super pumped about that. But I really enjoyed Violets, which was one of her early works that it was just translated this year. He also did <laughs> a book that was an unexpected favorite. And unfortunately, again, like Fiona, I wish I had read it last year so it could be on my top list. Cursed Bunny by Bora Chung. That book haunts me. It haunts me in all of my waking hours. So that's helpful. I wanted to give a special shout out to Mac Tarpley, whose new book, One Cup at a Time, the Cat Cafe collection, brings me joy in dark times and never fails to put a smile on my face. I did a lot of like old reading of stuff, catching up on classics. So um, Rashomon by Ryunosuke Akatagawa. Those shorts, thanks, Mark! Those short stories are baller. Um, they're really good. I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed that short story collection that the famous movie is based on, but just like it really blew me away and I really enjoyed myself reading them. I have to give uh, some love to my graphic novels. Lore Olympus by Rachel Smythe. I know it's it's very popular, but well worth the hype. Again, a shout out to Fiona. The aesthetic is strong. The aesthetic is very strong. And the continuing manga series, which had Atelier, which I think is Honestly, one of the best things being published right now, if you love a Miyazaki movie, if you love a magic system that kind of makes you sit back and go, Huh. But is also full of tremendous heart. You definitely have to check it out, and it's for all ages. I wanted to say At Dusk by Huang suk young was also very good and heartbreaking, and every time I see an old building tear down, I think of this book. Silence of the Bones by Jane Hur, a YA series. She's also a Canadian author and came out with a new one this year, Red Palace, also excellent, but I'm going back to the classics. "The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule, which I finally reread um, after having read it at a tragically young age and probably shouldn't have a whole up. Holds up. Came out with a new edition this year with a foreword by Georgia Hardstark, which I really enjoyed. And going back, Keep It Fictional always introduced me to a fantastic new authors and fantastic books. And I'm not a person who often takes recommendations, but last year Liz recommended Himawari House by Harmony. Oh no, my notes to myself are really bad. Beach. Um, Which was beautiful. Really, really beautiful. And I cried buckets and so again if i had read that last year that would have been on my top of my list but thank you liz for that
2: recommendation fine pick someone that is not here today for your recommendation um all right last but not least mark what are your shout outs
3: okay so i've got a bit of a long list too so i'm going to try and keep this as short as possible so the first one is a wild sheep chase by Haruki murakami it's one of his books i've been meaning to read for a long time it's definitely among my favorites of his now It's got the classic Murakami kind of feel, but it's also one of his earlier works, so it's a little bit fresher and kind of more lively feeling, in my opinion, whereas some of his more recent works maybe don't quite have the same feeling of freshness, whereas this one I feel like did. I reread The Constant Gardener by John Le Carre. That's definitely one of my favorite books of his, and it definitely ranks up among my favorite of the year. It definitely holds up since I've last read it a number of years ago. One book that was written this year that almost made my top five list was The Twilight World by Werner Herzog. I talked about that one on the podcast. I'm just going to skip over that one. Ivory Pearl by Jean Patrick Manchette. Anyone familiar with Monchette, He writes a lot of sort of dark, kind of sparse noir novels. This one has sort of geopolitical noir kind of feel to it, with mercenaries and uh, lots of schemes, and arms dealers, and things like that going on. It's an unfinished novel, but there is like a sort of brief kind of ending that's filled in by Manchette's son. Countries That Don't Exist by Sigismund Kirchnikovsky. He was talked about in the episode that introduced me to the podcast. Virginia talked about his autobiographies of a corpse. In this book, it's not short stories, actually, but nonfiction essays written by Sigismund that range on topics from Edgar Allan Poe to the little fables and other kinds of topics that interest him in literary matters. Another one is Mob Psycho 100 by One, a very good manga series that's also adapted into an excellent anime that you absolutely should read or watch. Frankly, I feel like he should have continued this series instead of One Punch Man, but that's another story. A couple of other nonfiction ones, uh, Film Fables by Jacques Ranciere, a philosopher, aesthetician, and analyzes famous films, art house films, and art theorists. Archaeologies of the Future by Frederick Jameson, another literary theorist writing about science fiction and utopian science fiction as it relates to social reality and the kinds of conditions that writers are writing in. Just a couple more Master Keaton by Naoki Urasawa, Takashi Nagasaki, and Hokusai Katsuhika. I'm convinced Keaton's like one of the best manga characters of all time. He's an archaeologist, slash, insurance investigator, slash, former military person, slash, detective. He's kind of like a jack of all trades, sort of most interesting man in the world kind of character going around the world solving issues and being a giant goof while he goes about it. And one final one, uh, Disapatio HG by Guido Marselli. Essentially, the story is this one guy is the last person on Earth. Overnight, he wakes up and everyone else is gone from Earth except for him. And he's kind of left to his own devices to look at this emptied out world on his own.
2: Thank you. Thank you, everyone. All right. That's great. So you have no, actually more than 20 books. There's so many books that we managed to talk about. This is excellent. Um, All right. So we are going to go into our top five picks for each. We are going to start with Fiona. All right. I'm
0: going to start us out real light with a romance. Sorry, Not Sorry by Sonia Singh. Okay, let me lay it out for you. Manny lost her parents three years ago. They were wonderful parents, but they were very set on her having the American dream, and they didn't do a lot to tie her to her Indian identity. She is now the CEO of a company that essentially breaks up with people (laughs) through emails. So she's great at crafting delicate, thoughtful emails. uh, And that is what she's done to create her company. She is engaged to Adam, an architect who never seems to be around and never really gives her the time of day, but she's pretty sure she's in love with. In comes Sammy Patel a client who needs a temporary breakup because he's going to his brother's a big fat Indian wedding and he can't bring his white girlfriend. Now, they never do temporary breakups. That is against breakups policy. <laughs> However, through a series of ridiculous events, Manny decides that she needs to take this client on and in exchange, he will show her what it's like to be truly Indian by taking her to his brother's wedding so deeply gimmicky but very fun and uh, of course it resonated with me because this year i went and met my indian partner's extended family so it was it was quite a lot of fun uh, to see that through uh, a fictional gaze And it just sort of, you know, I'm not sure it's a book that I'm going to think about a lot, but it was definitely entertaining to read and, you know, totally took me out of whatever else was going around as I focused on this ridiculous rom-com uh, yeah, just filled with Bollywood tropes and great, great saris and Langa and beautiful costuming. One note, there's a a few queer characters, and they're all used very much for advice. and sort of she goes and 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 meets the drag the drag queens, and then she has the gay friend who looks after her. Uh, so that was a little bit frustrating. But other than that, I found that. A lot of the tropes were sort of uh, inventive and actually added something to the the whole Bollywood uh, rom-com uh, genre of, of books. So if you're looking for something fun written this year, I would recommend
2: Sorry, Not Sorry by Sonia Singh. Thank you, Fiona. I bet that one's going to end up on a lot of people's list because it sounds like something fun that everybody needs in their life. So yeah, so let me take you to the not fun stuff Um, (laughs) that is equally great, but it's for me and for my life. For my number five book, it's a book that I did talk about on this show, um, my pick for the Pride Month episode this year. It got me fascinated of the ocean and everything in it. And of course, even though I'm still super terrified of it because I can't swim and Water is just scary. But I feel like water may be the theme this year because I have four books that I also have something to do with water. Really? This sort of makes me sort of discover that like when I want to approach something that is more like realistic, like a, a topic, you know, like humans, emotions and things like that. You know, like I I I needed something weird. I need a horror thing to draw me in. And so this book, like The Spring Between Us by Gus Morano and Four by Ian Reed, Yeah, I'm just gonna drop a lot of books in here. It draws me in with a horror premise and then surprise me with a Really deep and very thoughtful exploration of the human condition, and so I really, really appreciate books like that. And I think sometimes when people and and I think we all like that, you know, when we are lovers of a genre, we always feel like people are not giving the genre enough credit for doing something special, and and that can be as emotional as anything else. And I think horror novels are doing a lot of that these days. And so this one, I just love, 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 love so much. It is, of course, Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield, a story about a married couple, Leia and Miri. And after Leia went on a deep sea kind of research trip and she went missing for months and and everybody thinks that she's dead. And Miri is trying to like figure out how to deal with life with sort of no body, which means no closure. But then suddenly Leia reappeared, but she is completely different now. And so it's a couple that's trying to cope with those changes to Leia. And yes, there is definitely some body horror in this year. Um, you know, she has to stay inside the tub all the time, submerged in salt water and, and her skin turned translucent and just all sorts of like really wonderful things in here. What I think is the most amazing about the book is is those very kind of mundane, but yet very intimate details about their marriage, about how they fell in love, and that doesn't have to be like always a will-win kind of romance to be remarkable or to make a difference you know these are two people who found each other Um, so it's a very devastating kind of story of loss in some ways and so definitely for for people who want a very intense story it is not for something like go read Fiona's book if you're looking for something like if you want to look for something opposite of that you know because this book is going to just keep your heart clenched in a fist and just keep squeezing it you know throughout the whole book and I love it so much It's, it's just the mood that Julia Armfield managed you to do in this book And I always firmly believe that you do not need to see the monster to feel fear So this is Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield All right, okay So um, next we are going to go to Corrine to unveil her number five pick Yes, and I have to
1: apologize to Harmony Becker, who wrote post <laughs> not Harmony Becker. Yeah, which actually leads me to my uh, graphic novel pick in my top five. And, you know, sometimes you pick a, a, a book... Up because of your history of a reader. And so this particular graphic novel was kind of like in dialogue with a lot of books that I read as a young kid of like girl adventure, wants to go and become a knight, become like a a great fighter. But this book really takes a much more, takes that kind of trope, that idea, that very Tamora Pierce esque, if you will, narrative and kind of exam turns it around and makes you really think about it. Becoming a squire is not just about getting the fancy horse and the honor and the glory. In order to do that, you are becoming an instrument of war. And what does war actually mean? And if you are fighting, do you really understand what and whom you are actually fighting for? This is a book written by to lovers of fantasy, but as uh, one of the authors, Nadia Shama, says, I've grown up a lover of fantasy, but fantasy didn't always love me back. Honestly, most of the media I adored didn't, If Arabs were even hinted at in Western fantasy, we were the orcs, the barbarians, the savages with strange customs who needed to be tamed and civilized, usually by an attractive white person. And this book, written by two Arab Americans, Sarah Affigy and Nadia Shamus takes all those tropes that we know about Western fantasy, all those, those girl adventures of becoming a knight, and transforms it into something much more powerful. This is the graphic novel Squire, which is about Isa, who in what I'm going to say is kind of like an Ottoman Empire-esque fantasy world. She is a second-class citizen. She is an Ornu who are one of the many groups of people who have been claimed by this particular empire and integrated into it, but not really. The Ornu want to keep their culture, want to keep their language, want to keep their family structure together, and so maybe don't integrate or are assimilated into the larger culture. And because of that, they are shunned and people fear them and look at them with suspicion. But when the army is recruiting for squires to come and fight in the war, Isa sees this as a chance to really prove herself and, and become so much more than she could be living on the fringes on the outside. She could truly become one of the Empire and prove her loyalty and prove her worth to everyone else. But as she arrives in the camp and makes friends with all of the other people from different edges of the Empire, she decides to hide her Ornu status in order to better fit in. But if you can't really fight under your own name, under your own self, what are you really fighting for? And this is a fantastic YA graphic novel, perfect for Tamora uh, Pierce fans, that is just so beautiful. I know that, Fiona, you would appreciate the beautiful colors and the aesthetic of it, but it is such powerful storytelling and really a wonderful, wonderful look by two um, Arab-American creators questioning the narratives and the stories that are told. Um, So if you are looking for a great graphic novel to pick up, I would definitely recommend Squire, which is my
2: number five pick for the year. See, we can agree on stuff. That's a good one. I second your pick. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mark, what have you got on your number five?
3: My number five book is called What World Is This? by Judith Butler. So this is a nonfiction work. And the latest work from the widely influential social theorist Judith Butler joins an ever-growing number of writers writing about the pandemic um, and what the pandemic says about our collective social world that we live in. This includes reflections on the very meaning of shared life, society, and the shared conditions of living. And some of these reflections may seem rather basic on the surface, such as that everyone needs the same air to breathe, as was revealed by the airborne nature of COVID-19, and that if people don't have access to care or supplies of food, then they won't be able to live meaningful lives. It's from these initial sort of sets of ideas that Butler examines how we might begin to conceive of a social world that not only ensures the provision of things like time off work, guaranteed and universal access to healthcare, but also more thorough questioning of some of the dominant ideas and logic that determine many of the collective decisions in society. For example, the portrayal of the economy as though it was like a living organism that is sort of quote unquote harmed. By pandemic restrictions as though it were a physical body sustaining attacks but allowing harm and sickness to come to actual living bodies in all forms of sickness and injury and things like that or the idea that individual freedom to act as one pleases even when it's really only specific set of people who have the opportunity or the capacity to act as they please or escape the full consequences of exposure to the virus this work also builds on a lot of butler's other recent writings on grievability which essentially means Whose lives are more and or are considered worth publicly remembering, and a more equitable and ethical approach to politics and economics, particularly as it relates to social movements and equal access to things in general. All these ideas and ways of looking at the pandemic are very timely and relate closely to concerns about inequality and precariousness in people's lives even before the pandemic, and have been even more relevant now, as we've sort of experienced the last few years. And finally, also when the pandemic originally began. To spread globally there's certainly a lot of fear and dread but there's also a certain sense of hope that the pandemic would be a way to learn lessons about the fragility of life how decisions can be made with a more collective rather than individual mindset and it's through books discussions and demands like the ones that butler makes in this book that give a chance for that to actually come about in the future so if you're looking for a book that sort of reveals aspects of the pandemic and social life that you may not have thought about or are interested in knowing more about the inequalities exposed by the pandemic, then you may also like, what world is this?
2: Thank you, Mark. A timely, timely read. Um, Yeah, so those are our number five picks. So let's get on with our next round. So excited. Um, All right, Fiona, back to you. What is your number four pick? (laughs) Okay, my number four pick. I have no
0: idea who to recommend to. I think it was written purely for me. Um, <laughs> my number four pick is um, Emma Donoghue's Haven. So I am a fan of Emma Donahue. I think one of her books was on my top last year. But I haven't read Room, so I think that is one thing I can say is that um, it's compared a lot to to Room in the the sort of like general stiflingness of the atmosphere, um, and the and the fact that it's very character driven, and uh, some other things like there's three three main characters in it, one being more of the uh, the negative presence. So uh, I can say if you enjoyed Room, you should definitely pick this up. Otherwise. <laughs> If you have a thing for seabirds or clergy life, um maybe this is the book for you. so, um, this book is about three monks in the seventh century, actually, i guess I guess um two monks and a priest. And the priest is a very influential, well-regarded man who comes to to visit. Where the other two, the monks are, uh, and basically has a vision. He sees the way they're living there, and is not really impressed with you know their sort of laxative approach to fasting. And he has this vision <laughs> that he needs to strike out on a boat with a younger monk and an older monk, and find a island where they will be free from the negative influences of other humans. And they will basically just live for the glory of God on their tiny little island. So uh, he gets permission to do that. And he takes a young man by the name of Trian like Ian if he were a tree and um Cormac the older man and so Cormac I really really loved. He was this uh yeah sort of miracle that he was still alive. He was part of the like pagan population and he lived through the plague where he lost his family. Uh he's hit in the head in a little skirmish by like a um uh, what's that called when you shoot something out of a I can't think of it. But basically he's hit in the head with a rock. And a priest is actually able to save him from that um, by like by extracting part of his skull. So it's amazing that he's still alive and that's the point at which he turns to Christianity and joins joins up as a monk. Because he's lived all of this life outside, uh, he has many skills, and he's a little bit less, I guess, less obedient than Trian, who became a monk when he was thirteen years old, and has he's just he's like a eighteen or something now, and he's described as this like gangly, pimply, redheaded boy with lots of energy who always wants to please, and then Art is the priest. Initially, the two other monks are completely captivated by him because he is so pious. Basically, uh, he's very Machiavellian about God and, you know, willing to to suffer in the flesh uh, for the glory of God in pretty much every way. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. (laughs) Um, So these three men get on a tiny boat and Art's like, oh, you don't need cheese. You don't need salt. Leave all that stuff behind. God will provide. And they get to this tiny Skellig, which I found very fascinating. Donahue actually based it on uh, Skellig Michael. It's uh, like off the coast of Ireland, and it's the one that's used in um, Star Wars, where um, Luke Skywalker's hideout. So I could actually like really, um, really picture it quite perfectly. Uh, it's quite barren, and you know how there's those little like puffiny things in Star Wars. Well, this is in fact a island that is covered in in real puffins and giant ox. So Art's like amazing. Look what God gave us to eat, uh, and they start to like slowly destroy the population of all these seabirds. There was. Much mushroom foraging, not, not direct mushroom foraging, but all of these things where they would like make quills out of great oak feathers and they would burn their fats down into candles and all this stuff that I just deeply enjoy reading about, like just so much historical research. In terms of like uh, historical fiction, I think it was like absolutely on point. I know more than I will ever need to about 7th century monks uh, in Ireland. But it is an extremely slow-paced book, and it's quite simple at its core. Basically, it's three characters on an island doing this survival-type stuff that they have chosen to put themselves in their situation. Content warning for transphobia kind of comes out of nowhere, and it it was something that I would have liked to know coming into the book. So, again, I'm not quite sure who to recommend this to. Mark may enjoy it. It's very character-driven and contemplative, very reflective on, obviously, religion and the lengths we go to, and and also kind of seeing these three different worldviews come together and the the power play between, you know, who has control over whom um, in this situation where there's literally no one else uh, to step in. So I did really enjoy it I hope someone else can enjoy it too that is Haven by Emma Donahue. that
2: is such a Fiona book the more you talk about it I'm like oh yeah foraging check monks check slow pace check <laughs> this is perfect so good so good and a lot of people enjoy room so you know if you think that this is a book for people who read room then I think maybe, and and Mark could tell us once he reads it. Yes. All right. Well, I'm also going to talk about a book that is very much like a, a Virginia book, I feel like. This is a book that I, I talk about back in, I think, January in our first most anticipated episodes of the year on uh, Keep It Fictional. And I don't think anyone of you are here. I remember it was just me and Liz that day, but I already said it, like caught it at that, that point, you know, even just first month of the year, this is going to make it up to my list and it is on my list. Um, a book from an amazing writer and amazing storyteller, a book that begs to be read aloud, which I did frequently. It is just absolutely delightful all the way through for me. And it is a political satire that especially about my weird dictatorship book obsession thing that I have. And it is inspired by the coup and the fall of Zimbabwe president Robert Mugabe in 2017. This is Glory by Noviola Bolaweo, a story of a fictional African country called Jidada with a da and another da. And what happened to that country and and more importantly, what happened to the people of the country after it was liberated from the white colonists? Everybody celebrated. Everybody think, yes, yes, you know, like we are now in control of our, our own country. But 40 years later, when the father of the nation, their liberator is still in power, everybody starts to wonder what actually has improved in our lives don't know, like they they just couldn't figure it out. And, and every time when there's election, they believe in the hashtag free, fair, credible election that might actually come true. But instead, all the people that are opposed to the government just mysteriously keep disappearing. So a wonderful, wonderful story reads very much like a fable and a folktale. And I do have to say, even though I know, like as I said in that episode, this might stop you from reading. It is like a fable that is told through the eyes of anthropomorphic animals. So it is like all about like animal characters, but it is so good. And Novila Bulawayo wrote, uh, this is their second book. She wrote a book called We Need New Names. I think that was published about 10 years ago. So this 10 years been stream books, but you know what? You take whatever time you need to write because I will see you in 10 years because I can't wait to see what you are going to come up with. And in the meantime, I'm just going to go visit Chidada with a da and another da again and again. So this is Glory by No Violet Bulawayo. All right. Um. Okay. So, um. A very Fiona book, a very Virginia book. Let's see whether we have a very Korean book or not.
1: It is a very Korean book, and uh, we need new names. Is great, but very, very different from the book that you have read, Virginia. Um. So it's always interesting seeing an author spreading their wings as it were but anyways yeah so this is a very career book and i feel like this is an author and or a series that always ends up on my top five of the year just because they are consistently solid it's like a high school essay they tell you what they're going to do at the beginning of the book they tell you exactly how they're going to do it and they execute it flawlessly and at the end they say and i did it Thank you very much. And so it is an easy A-plus slam dunk for Seishi Yokomizo's series featuring the scruffy-haired detective Kozuki Kindachi in what I believe is the fourth, fourth book in the series. All of them solid. All of them great. But this is the one that was published this year, so this makes it onto my top four. Death on Gokuman Island. This reads and is like a beautiful golden age detective story. You get all the clues at the beginning and then you try to work it out before the detective. But of course, you never do. And this one has a very like, and then there were none vibe to it, which I always love. Like never go into an island, never go onto an island. Never. Is there only one fairy that goes there like once a week? Forget it. Forget it. Those islands are full of murderers. Murderers and or, as Fiona said, monks. Neither of which you want to spend time with. So this one is kind of like an earlier story of the detective where it is just after the war. And I read this after just finishing the setting sun. So this was like very interesting of like post-war Japan. And Kendachi is... With one of his old army friends and they are being sent back home. And his his very good friend uh, Chiamada Kido is overjoyed, thrilled, as is everyone. But he is oddly excited, strangely excited to have survived this war. Except unfortunately, he contracts a disease on the boat and kicks it. But before he does, he makes Kindachi swear makes him promise that he will go to his home island, Gokumon Island, and break the news to his family and the townspeople there. And what is more, that he needs to go there to prevent a murder. Chamada is convinced, delirious, absolutely insistent that his death will only lead to more deaths. And so with no more information than that, Kendachi decides to fulfill this promise to his his dead friend and goes to this very remote island to share the news of his friend's passing to his family and to break it to the rest of the village. Uh, The Kido family is a very important family on this village. Uh, It is a fishing village, and There are bosses of fishing who kind of own the boats and the docks and the harbors. And so this family has always been extremely important on the island. And so everyone is devastated when they learn that the oldest son will not be returning from the war. However, as soon as he arrives and starts getting comfy, the murders begin. (laughs) Each of them more banana pants than the last. (laughs) No, you can't just have a normal Myrtle. Uh, uh, uh. Things are going to get weird. Very, very weird. Um, In this twisty, turny, absolutely (laughs) off the wall, very like midsummer Murders (laughs) that leads to a, frankly, (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it. It's a wild ending and I loved it. I love the journey. I was with him the entire time. It's just... Ah, it's like a classic murder mystery that's just so competently written. You just know you're in good hands from the first page and you will just have such a good time. Any of this series I would definitely recommend, but uh, I feel like this one is definitely my top four and there's another one coming out next year and I think it's going to be in exactly the same spot. Never disappoint. Always solid. So that is death on Gokuman Island.
2: Thank you, Corinne. Always good to have reliable, reliable picks. Yes, right. Don't want disappointment. Um. All right. So Mark, make it four, four, four. Is it a Mark book? Is there such thing as not a Mark book? I don't know.
3: Okay, I think this is slightly qualifies as a Me book at least. Um. So the book in my number four spot is The Employees by Olga Raven. And as the cover here tells you, this book was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. And so essentially this story takes place in the 22nd century on a ship traveling through space that's millions of kilometers from Earth. This is the crew of the 6,000 ship and consists of both humans and robots. When the ship takes on a cluster of strange objects from the planet New Discovery, the crew is perplexed to find itself becoming increasingly attached to them and fascinated by these sort of Odd, clustered, kind of like red pomegranate seeds, and these kind of pulsating, radiating motions of them, and this sort of inexplicable mood and aura that they sort of get that's emanating from them that they can't seem to explain or quite understand. But when they're in the presence of them, they get this strange mixture of feelings, like nostalgia and like emotions that come swelling up inside of them for reasons that they don't quite understand. And gradually, the crew members come to see themselves in a new light. And each employee is compelled to ask themselves whether they can carry on their work as before and what these objects mean and things like this. And the book itself is structured as a series of witness statements compiled by a workplace commission, as each chapter is essentially only about a page or two. And each one is told from the perspective of a different employee on this ship, essentially, which is where the name employees comes from. And you can sort of see in their testimonies that they're all wracked by feelings of longing, desire, desire emotion, feelings of disconnection from themselves or their work. And aspects of the story in which the crew members start to begin to recall or feel connected to the past is somewhat rep- reminiscent of another sci-fi novel that I think is very important. It's called Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. So if anyone's familiar with that particular novel, then you might get a bit of a feeling of what you're going to get into in this book. Just very much this feeling of uncertainty, mystery, and fascination, and even dread, that sort of pervades these testimonies that we don't quite understand at first, but sort of slowly get to re- revealed a little bit more piece by piece. And because it's very fragmented, like I said, each chapter is told from a different person's perspective, and each chapter is very short and because each person only has a very partial view of the events of what's going on. Um, it's only later, very late in the book that you sort of understand what has happened and what's going to be happening in the very near future. And this sort of reinvites rereading to re-examine each person's statements to sort of get a better understanding of what they're getting at, as you can kind of see the different pieces falling into place and their different feelings and perspectives on these strange cluster of objects. And it's a very short book, too. So it's only like 130, 140-so pages. So if you do reread it, it's not actually going to be very long. Like it's going to be still going to be shorter than an average book, more or less, really. So if you like atmospheric introspective or very tightly written sci-fi, then you may also like The Employees by Olga Robin.
2: Mark, I don't know if rereading would help me understand that book. I need another 30 minutes from you and so that you can explain to me what has happening in that book. Because it's probably the most confusing book I've read in the whole year. I have like no idea what's going on. And I don't think rereading will help me. But anyway, so yes, I, that is a definitely a mark book. That is such a mark book. Um, so those are our uh, number four and number five picks. We are going to keep you in suspense until next week where we are going to review our top three picks. So stay tuned for those. And thank you for listening. And uh, we will see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening.
1: If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional!